Well, Gilead is a, a beautiful novel by the author Marilyn Robinson, and it's set in, in a fictional town in Iowa in, in the United States. It's written from the perspective of a retired minister uh, called John Ames. He had married late in life. He'd become a, a father late in life unexpectedly. And as he writes this book, Gilead, he recounts memory after memory after memory as a kind of gift for his son. Uh, Much of it is so ordinary, and yet it's a book that's so rich, it's so full of wisdom. He tells his son his story, where he's come from, and it's profoundly moving. As he's dying, he's saying, these are the things I want you to know. This is the story that you are part of. This is the wisdom that I want to give to you. And in a sense, it's really like our passage tonight. Proverbs chapter 3 is one example of a kind of dynamic that runs through the whole of this book, especially chapters 1 to 9, and it is the father-son dynamic. And one of the beautiful things about Proverbs is that it's written with that relationship in view. In a sense, it's similar to 2 Timothy, just as Paul gives advice to his son in the faith, Solomon wants to do the same. And at many points from chapter 1, verse 8, where we finished last week, all the way through to chapter 9, he says, my son, my son, my son, my son. Now, of course, even when a father-son relationship, um, some of us are fortunate to have a good relationship with our our dads, even when it's good, it can have uh, challenging seasons, can't it? Um, The author, uh, Mark Twain, he once said this, when I was a boy of 14, My father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. When I got to 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. And so as we approach these verses, we've got that, for many of us, we've got that relationship, maybe with our own father in mind, it can affect how we view uh, this passage, I guess. And yet we need to come to it as God's Word tonight. And as we approach these verses, there's lots of different ways that we could divide them up. We could divide them up um, anatomically. Maybe you noticed all the different body parts that were mentioned. Solomon speaks of the heart in verse 1, the neck, verse 3, the eyes in verse 4 and 7, flesh and bones in verse 8. It's almost as if he's saying, I want this wisdom that I'm giving to you. I want it to go right down inside you. I want it to become part of you. So we could read it anatomically, or we could read this passage the way we watch uh, a tennis match. Because all the way through this passage, it is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's command and then consequence, command and then consequence. So look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. That's, if you like, the command. Then in verse 8, the consequence, it will be healing to your flesh and so on. So this father, he doesn't come to his son and uh, say, this is how you live, just do it. He says, do this because. Uh, I'm a very junior dad, and that struck me this week. I know there's a place for, you need to just do what you're told, 
But if a father's mode is predominantly like that, if it is just obey me, just do that, just stop that. And by the way, that mode can be there even if he never raises his voice. Then that child is going to stop listening, aren't they? Children need to be helped to see why they're to do something, why it is their benefit. So those are two ways we could crack open this passage. But I want to suggest a third. Can you see the very last word in verse 12? Look at verse 12. The Lord reproves him he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Delights. Um, As I've thought about this passage this week, I've thought, what would this passage be like if that word wasn't there? I think it would change the tone, the feel of all of this stuff in Proverbs. I want you to imagine that the passage turned upside down. And that little word, delight, kind of raining down on the passage, like rain, like oil, like ink, like honey, all over these verses. Or if you prefer this, imagine that word, delight, like a sunrise, like a sun coming up, spreading warmth and light all across this, this text. This book is written by a father who, who delights in his son. He loves him. He really wants what is best for him. He really wants his sun to shine. And how can he do that? These verses tell us. It's almost as if this father is, has kind of taken words spoken by the heavenly father to or of Jesus, and he's changed them slightly. He's said to this son, you are my son whom I love. Listen to me. And as we look at this passage, I want to divide it into three verses, one to four, verses five to ten, verses eleven and twelve. As his father is, he calls his son to a wise life. The very first thing he says to him is, verses 1 to 4, mark my words. Mark my words. That's the first heading. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. As Solomon speaks to his son, he wants him to hold on to words words he's given him in the past. In one sense, what he's talking about here is all the other words he's already spoken about or given to him in this section. By the time we get to chapter 3, he's given him all kinds of commands and teaching. He's warned, about, warned him about bad influences, about easy money, about violence in his life. He's warned him of the danger of adultery, which he's going to go on to speak about at length. He's encouraged him to seek wisdom at all costs. And yet, even though he's already said all of that, he clearly knows his son might be tempted to turn away from that kind of teaching. And so he he issues this call to remember. Remember what I've said. But I think it's just a little bit more than that. Look at the language he uses in verse 3. And ask yourself if it reminds you of any other parts of Scripture. 
And it reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. It begins with the Shema, the great prayer the Israelites knew by heart. They were to love the Lord their God. The Lord their God was one. They were to love Him with all their heart, soul, and strength. God calls them to press His Word home to the next generation in that passage in Deuteronomy 6. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. And our passage is like that. In our passage, the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness, it's covenantal language. This is what God is like. This is how you're to live, he's saying. And we hear of God's faithfulness in, in the past. We respond to it. We help those who will come after us to do the same. And I, I, uh, I never really wore a watch um, until I became a teacher. Um, you really need to know what the time is when you're a teacher in the, in the classroom. It's the same for preachers. There's a clock up there. But there are watches, and there are watches, aren't there? And Patek Philippe. Patek Philippe is a watchmaker with some watches that are, as they cost as much as houses. And kind of years ago, they had this uh, really simple, I think they still have it, brilliant advertising slogan. Um, I heard it used as a sermon illustration. The ad, it shows this kind of perfectly manicured father and son, black and white picture. And they're like on a boat or playing lawn tennis or something like that. The line says, you never actually own a Patek Philippe. Maybe you know the answer. You merely look after it for the next generation. You never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for the next generation. In one sense, that's the Christian life. That's Proverbs. That's this passage. That's fatherhood. And passing on a spiritual heritage to our children. It's something we can do even if we don't have children ourselves. We can do that with the children in our church. See, what is the most important thing you and I can give children, give our children? And our culture has got lots of different uh, responses, ideas about that question. But is it enough that they can recycle is it enough that they are kind? Kindness is like the word kids are being taught today. There's nothing wrong with that in one sense, but they need more than that, don't they? Is the most important thing you and I could give our children, is it a really good education? Well, I think that's important, but they deserve much, much, much more than that, don't they? Um, I know there can be so much guilt in parenting, and probably especially today. A few years ago, I read a, an article by Kevin DeYoung, an American um, pastor. He, he said, we've never, we've, our generation, we've never had more time with our kids. We've never had more flexibility in our work. And we've never, we are a generation who's never felt worse or more anxious about how we're doing as parents. But what 
our kids need from us are not the coolest clothes, the best toys. What they really need are words. They need words. They need words they can treasure, words they can hold on to all their life, words about God, words that tell them who they are, words that tell them how to please God. No one else will give them those words. And so they need to know what God is like. They need to know God is loving. God is good. God is sovereign. They need to know how to live. Grateful, trusting Him, content. And they need to know the blessing that how good that will be for them. Look at verse 2 and look at verse 4. And the idea here is of a fullness of life length of days and so on. One author put it this way, this is life in the full sense of the world word. This is life as God made it to be. This is what Jesus would call life to the full. This is shalom, it's peace, it's things as they should be. Solomon's saying, if you live like this, people will look at your life and they'll say, that's that's a life that's been lived well. This will be a life that will come with God's approval. Solomon is saying, I want that for you. I want that for you, son. So mark my words. Mark my words. Secondly, though, verses 5 to 10, he says something else. He says, give your all. Give your all, verses 5 to 10. Now, I think we've got a problem with... um, verse 5 and verse 6, haven't we? The problem is that they're always on cards. Uh, This week, I opened a a drawer in our house, and I found a card with these verses on them that I'd been given about a year and a half ago. And I think maybe sometimes familiarity can lead us to miss what's really going on here. If we look at this passage, 5 to 10, I think the key word is all. Can you see it? It's there in verse 5. It's there in verse 6. It's there in verse 9. Solomon wants his son to trust God with all his heart. He wants him to acknowledge God in all his ways, honor God with all he gives to him. It's wholeheartedness. This is a son being encouraged to give absolutely everything to God. And I think it's really hard to think of verses that cut against our culture more than these. Just look at with me at the two things this son is not to do. Look at the second half of verse 5. Do not lean on your own understanding. And then look at the first half of verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. That is so countercultural, isn't it? That's like the opposite of what kids are told today. So many ways um, from childhood onwards, we're told, trust yourself, be yourself, follow your heart, you do you. Someone once said, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, let it go. I won't sing. Let it go. But Proverbs says, no, trust in the Lord. That word really means lie face down. And Solomon says that is the posture of wisdom, dependence, need of God. 
Instead of trusting in ourselves, you and I were called to trust in Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Meaning, in all your ways, hold Him in mind. In all the decisions of life. In all that you do, remember Him. Ask His advice. Consider what He would make of what you want to do. He will make your path straight. But maybe you hear that and you think, well, I've made mistakes. I've got regrets. I wish I hadn't done whatever it is. Well, friends, if that's you tonight, you need to know what many people have taken comfort from over the years. It's this, God writes straight with crooked lines. God can write straight with crooked lines. We may, you and I, we might take detours in our life. Sometimes I think we, we wish we could just kind of make it to the end of our life as the crow flies. But even when we mess up, even when we stray, God is still faithful. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing is ever wasted with God. And maybe you need to know that tonight. Maybe you need to give to God. Maybe you've never done this through tears, the absolutely worst things you've done. The hardest things you've experienced. Maybe you need to ask him, Lord, please use that experience. Use it to make me long to be close to you, to make me a blessing to other people. He can do that. He loves to do that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What about verses 8, 9, and 10? And what are we to make of them? Do they kind of contradict everything I've just said? Uh, If you look at them, they, they kind of sound, here's the phrase I thought of this week, they sound a bit prosperity gospel ish, don't they? Why does Solomon use these examples and what do they mean? Well, again, like verse 2, this is not kind of formulaic. It's not mechanical. This is not all the Bible has to say about kind of physical blessings or money or things like that. In Psalm 49, we're told not to be overawed when we see people growing rich. We take nothing with us when we die. We leave everything. I think 8, 9, and 10, they're kind of a picture of a good life. They're a picture of shalom. And if Solomon, if he wants his son to give God his all, then in a sense, what his son does with his money, that's the perfect illustration, isn't it, for him to use here? Because money is something all of us rely on, isn't it? We, we trust in it so easily. It makes the world go round. And so Solomon wants his son, he brings up this kind of thing because he wants his son to learn to live with an open hand. Now, giving the first fruits of the harvest, that was something we see all through the Old Testament. It was a reminder to God's people when they did that, that, that everything God had given them was from him, that nothing really belonged to them. It was, it was an expression of trust. 
And so I wonder, do we, you and I, do we, do we view material possessions that way, our money, our stuff? Do we lack the faith to give? Sometimes the best way to, to show that we trust God is not by praying, but by logging onto our internet banking and giving some money away. And the testimony of the generous is that they always have enough to live on. God is no man's debtor. And kids and grown-ups, we, we all need to know that, don't we? As we grow up, as we earn money, I think it gets harder and harder to give money away, doesn't it? Money's got a way, it's got a way of wrapping its tentacles around our heart. And so Solomon, he wants his son to shine. He wants him to prize his words. He wants him to give his all. But here's the third thing. He wants his son to sense God's love. Sense God's love. That's the third point tonight. Sense God's love. Mark my words. Give your all. Sense God's love. Um, a few weeks ago, Andy and Steve and I, we were at um, Presbytery in Edinburgh, and we'd had our fish and chips. Andy had a short meeting that he had to go to uh, before the evening got underway. And so Steve and I, we walked up, we got a coffee, and we walked up to Edinburgh Castle in Presbytery. It sounds quite, sounds quite nice, doesn't it, now? You hear all that, fish and chips, a coffee, a nice view of Edinburgh. As you leave the castle, as you walk down uh, the Royal Mile, maybe some of you have seen Camera Obscura. It's like this um, attraction. There's all these big mirrors. And if you walk past, Steve and I, we didn't go in, but they make your body, they make your body look bigger or wider or taller or, or squash you, all kinds of things. They obscure what you look like. And I thought of that when I read these verses. Since the Garden of Eden, devil has spread a great lie about God. And what is that lie? Adam and Eve, they believed it. We do so often. It's simply this. God doesn't actually love us. That's basically what Satan said, isn't it? He's keeping something from you. God doesn't want what's best for you. And you and I, I think, our view of God, even if we've been Christians for years, our view of Him is so often warped, it's obscured, it's different to what God is really like. We think He thinks of us one way, but He doesn't. And Solomon doesn't want that for his son. He he wants him to know that God views him the way He views him. He wants him to sense, to feel God's love, even when God is disciplining him. Don't resent it, he says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Verse 12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So God is not harsh. God is not out to crush his people. No, God is a father who loves his children. 
Sometimes he will discipline them. Sometimes he, he allows difficulties to come into our lives as Christians. But love is always his motivation. Love. Now, I think it's really important to be careful when we're talking about this kind of thing. We need to remember our sins have been paid for on the cross. We need to remember we suffer in this fallen world for all kinds of different reasons. And yet, sometimes suffering and difficulties, they come into our lives. God allows that. Sometimes he does it for lots of reasons. Sometimes to wake us up. Sometimes suffering can come into a Christian's life and it can, it can make him or her look at how they've been living. And when that happens, when we go through difficulties as believers, we need to remember we have a father. We need to remember, as one person put it, that behind a frowning providence, there lies a smiling face. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. These verses are picked up by the author of um, Hebrews, and in chapter 12 of that letter, he uses them as uh, a motivation to perseverance. So just turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 12, turn or listen, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is a famous chapter, isn't it? In verses uh, 1 and 2, we're called, the writer of Hebrews says, we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to, we're to run the race ahead of us. Verse 3, we're to consider him. We're to not grow weary. And then in verse 5 and uh, verse 6, our verses are quoted. Maybe you can, you can see that. As we suffer, as we struggle, the author of Hebrews says in verse 7 that it is for discipline we have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. And so maybe tonight God is pruning you you can feel that's happening. Well, don't despair if that's happening tonight. See, look at the fruit of this discipline. Look at verse 10. It is sharing in holiness. Becoming more like him it means righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, verse 11. And I'm really confident tonight that lots of us would say amen to all of this. Lots of us will know what it's like uh, to have this kind of experience. Maybe there's been spells when, when God used affliction, used suffering in our lives to, to bring us back to him. Some kind of suffering, it, it just stripped away layers of sin in our lives. But you and I, we've got to remember that when God does that, his motivation is always love. Pain in the Christian life, pain is very often the beginning of growth. It's the sign of love. Good parents, they do that, don't they? They have to treat their children like that all the time. Sometimes they have to allow difficulties to happen. 
Often you and I think God doesn't care, but he does care. God is treating you and I, he's treating us like sons. He's molding us. He is knocking off edges. He is creating the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so tonight, let Solomon, let him point you all the way from this chapter, all the way to a chapter like Romans 8. As we close, just listen to verse 28 of that chapter. Paul says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And why did God call us? What is that good? Friends, it's absolutely staggering. In the next verse, Paul says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be like Jesus. That is what our Heavenly Father has committed to do in us, for us. That is our destiny. There is nothing greater than that. And the promise of Scripture is that when we see Him, you and I, we will be like Him. Like Him. We will be like our Savior, our Master, our brother. And so let's rejoice tonight and let's pray together. Let's pray.